This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman. It may be hard to believe, but we're in the middle of Donald Trump's first 100 days as president, a period that has become, for better or for worse, a yardstick for measuring a new president's ability to get things done. President Trump has already signed executive orders unwinding regulations. He's ordered a review of many others. And he made his first address to a joint session of Congress. To discuss where policy might go from here and its impact on the broader economic and business environment, I'm joined today by Michael Pease, the co-head of our Office of Government Affairs, and Alec Phillips, U.S. political economist for Goldman Sachs Research. Alec, Michael, welcome to the program. It's good to be here, Jake. Thanks. So, Michael, let's start with you. You and your team are much in demand as clients of Goldman and colleagues sort through the latest political developments. What are the questions you're hearing most often from people outside of Washington? As you stated, we've had a lot of clients' activity and team has been trying to sort of educate not only ourselves, but our clients on what are the policy agenda that we can expect from the Trump administration given its ambitious nature and its unorthodox nature. So in a lot of our trips, particularly outside the United States, I think clients are trying to understand the Trump phenomenon, how you think about rhetoric versus reality. And... One of the large questions is trying to understand what's going to come next. So I think a couple observations we've sort of given is that given the agenda that he has, tax, repeal of the ACA, infrastructure, immigration, deregulation, how do you understand the pace of that? How do you understand democratic opposition? So one of the things I think we've tried to do is try to peer through the noise and look at what we think is reasonably achievable given the political dynamics. So I think the biggest thing clients are attempting to do is understand it so they can plan their own business, allocate their own capital, and look at what the reasonable prospects are for big changes in domestic and international policy. And we can talk about that later today, but I think those are the big questions on their mind. So you mentioned you were in Europe. You met some CEOs there. Do their views of this administration differ from what you're hearing from our American clients, or are they roughly parallel? I think that the difference is is they look at it in a more macro level and they try, particularly if you look in Germany and France and other places, and try to draw an analogy to what is going on politically there. For example, there's an upcoming election in France, and I think they're trying to understand after Brexit whether or not punditry and conventional wisdom will either apply here or it will not. Well, I think domestic clients are sort of interested in, I think, the big drivers that we've seen is if we're going to have tax reform, how large is it going to be? What's the trade policy going to be? And one of the things we spend a lot of time on is how do they all interconnect with each other in terms of pace and content? The American clients sort of get Trump because they've lived it. But I think now they're trying to understand how this sort of complex policy environment works and what they can expect. So, Alec, you were first on the program just after the election. And there was a lot of uncertainty at the time about how the president might govern. We have a little more clarity today, maybe a lot more. How have your views and those of your colleagues at Goldman Sachs Research evolved during the first two months of the Trump administration? And what have been the biggest surprises? At the outset, there was a lot of focus on the prospect for tax reform, for fiscal stimulus, sort of the deregulatory agenda and what that might do. And I think over the last couple of months, what we've seen is while clients are still very much focused on all of that, that they're also starting to look more at some of these other issues that are out there. So one would be, as an example, you know, you mentioned trade, and that's clearly sort of a more negative risk against some of those positive risks. 
And then even things like immigration, for instance. So we saw right after the inauguration, the president come out with an executive order, and that was treated pretty poorly by the market. And I think it wasn't necessarily because of the specifics. It was because it was a signal that maybe you were going to have this balance of, yeah, he's going to do some of these things on the positive agenda, tax reform and so on, but that maybe there will be some of these other things that people were discounting a little bit, and maybe we should take those a little bit more seriously. And so I'd say overall, the way we're looking at it is there's just this balance between things that are going to be particularly on the fiscal side, you know, more stimulative, and then things that actually could have negative growth effects but are part of the agenda. I mean, they're part of the stated agenda as well. So they're being more realistic about not discounting some of the things he said in the campaign, in essence. Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, it's a difficult thing to figure out because we go back and forth. On the one hand, you have some reasonably restrictive rhetoric on immigration and trade, but we haven't actually seen very much yet. That's an observation that we've made with clients is this administration is historically slow out of the gate to control the bureaucracy and set policy. So if you look at even the Obama administration in 08, stimulus packets would have already been done the second tranche of TARP, and they already had started on cap and trade and Obamacare. Here, most of the nominees and over 500 still Senate nominees have not been named, only 18 have been, I think at this date, been approved. And then the thousands of others who are political appointees are not in. So the ability for this administration to not only control the bureaucracy, but set policy is more limited based on the slow pace. And I think that's affecting the ability to match rhetoric with policy and get it done sort of right in the first instance. And I mean, you saw this with the immigration order. I'll just make one other quick follow-up point to that, which is, There is this other difference, too, which is a bunch of the things that I think people are looking at as potential positives, like tax reform, maybe infrastructure, those are things that have to go through Congress. Some of these other risks that are out there, like on trade policy, there's a lot that the president can do on his own. And so people are also trying to figure out, okay, what are the risks on the positive side that things get held up in Congress versus what is the risk that we wake up one morning and we've got some sort of a new tariff or something else like that. Yeah. So, Michael, the President Trump has obviously emphasized his business background, and he's touting public policies that have generally been interpreted as pro-growth. I mean, particularly corporate tax reform, deregulation. You would think that there was a certain amount of alignment between him and what congressional Republicans have been trying to do for a long time. How do you see the politics of that playing out? Are congressional Republicans going to seize on this opportunity? And why aren't they moving more quickly to act on some of these proposals where they can? That's an interesting question and one we spend a lot of time with clients. The choice, and this may be a choice they come to regret, to move on the Affordable Care Act first impacts the other things that you had mentioned. Not only nominees and time on the Senate floor, but on tax reform as a general matter. So I look at the Affordable Care Act a little like the dog that caught the car. They've been running, the Republicans have been running for a long time on repealing it, but replacing it is difficult. And as they started in on the policy considerations related to it, I think they realized they had very big fissures in their caucus. As of this recording, you see that playing out now. So the disposal, whether successful or not, or health care, will impact the rest of the agenda. It's timing in particular. I still think at the end of the day, we'll see, and Alec can talk as well as I can, about whether or not we'll get a tax cut or tax reform. I think we will see a tax package. How large it is will be determined. But when it comes, we'll be affected by the ACA debate. And then one last thing I'll say on DREG, personnel is policy. That will happen independently of Congress. I and mean, you'll have to get certain nominees through. That will eventually happen. 
when those individuals are in place, whether if you're thinking about financial services or anywhere else, once those people are in place, I think you'll see a deregulatory agenda come forward. But again, that has been slowed for a number of reasons that I already had talked about. So when we talk about policy, assess the political dynamics right now. I mean, the president, not hugely popular by historic means for this point, but still has a very strong base, the base that elected him. So how do the politics of the president's popularity affect his ability to get things done? That's a really interesting question because if you look at the sort of the basic poll, he is at historically low approval ratings around 42 percent. But 86 percent of Republicans support him. They believe ultimately he's doing what he promised. And that ultimately, given the fact that we're in a system where you can't change your mind, at least with the president, will allow him to move forward in generally seen as an effective president from his basis perspective. If that 86 number begins to falter because you can't get health care done and you don't get tax done and, in fact, he looks like he's failing, that number erodes. I think that will impede his agenda and invite Republicans perhaps to go their own way. Having said that, he has a wall of opposition. 86 percent of Democrats are against him and 47 percent of independents. So in a sense, he has lost the ability to be a bridge president to some of these, at least as we sit there today. But until you see Republicans abandon him, I think he can proceed with his agenda. One other thing, and I'm interested to see what Alex thinks about this. They're going to need, they Republicans are going to need the president to weigh in on the ACA and on tax to bring this fractious caucus together in the House. It remains to be seen how he's going to play that. I mean, he is referring to the health care proposals, the Ryan proposal. Is he going to own it or is he going to distance himself from it? And is he going to be able to sort of bring the parties together, which I think is a big question as I sit here today. So, Alec, let's talk about taxes. Obviously, corporate America gets very excited and markets get excited about the prospect of a tax cut and uh, even more excited about the prospect of sweeping corporate tax reform. Markets seem to be anticipating more than just a simple rate reduction like we've seen in the past. Do you think it's possible, given the complexity of the political dynamics that Michael outlined, that we could actually get a big, comprehensive tax deal? So it's possible. The way I would look at it is you have a high probability of a tax cut, some kind of tax bill that reduces tax revenues, probably mostly on the corporate side, but maybe some individual. You have maybe a better than even shot, but not a lot better than even shot of doing something more comprehensive in terms of tax reform that makes really big, meaningful changes. And then, in my view, you have a pretty low probability that you get the more, I think you could describe them as radical proposals that we've seen from the House Republicans in terms of, for instance, the border-adjusted tax and some of these really big changes that would constitute probably the biggest changes we've had in decades on the corporate tax side. You know, in the end, it's interesting because there's a sort of debate with clients right now. Is this 1981 and 2001? Is this just like a straight tax cut at the beginning of a new term? Or is this... Kind of classic beginning Republican... Exactly move is just lower the rates a little bit across the board. Or is this 1986, which if you remember, Reagan worked with Congress to do a comprehensive package that actually wasn't even really a tax cut. It just moved a lot of things around and restructured. Frankly, it's a little different from both of those. The fiscal situation is a lot different from 81 or 2001. Deficits are bigger, debts higher. At the same time, I don't think we're going to have a bipartisan tax reform package And how do you make really big, comprehensive structural changes 
with potential unintended consequences on a partisan basis. It's tough because when you do it, you own it. And picking winners and losers, which is what tax reform is about, is pretty tough when you do that on a partisan basis. So in the end, the likelihood is that we get a tax bill. They can do it through the reconciliation process, which means they only need 51 votes in the Senate. They don't need Democratic support, which they probably won't get much of. And that probably will be a tax cut. We think maybe the corporate rate goes to 25 percent, probably not down to 20 or certainly not down to 15 that President Trump has talked about with some sprinkling of reform on top. Republicans have a big vote coming up on debt limit. Historically been very reluctant to raise the debt limit, but the sort of facts are that we're running a deficit and uh, that adds to the debt every year and we'd run up against that limit. How can Republicans maneuver a tax cut that's, you might say, unpaid for, even if you do some dynamic scoring, that's going to basically broaden the deficit with that traditional fiscal conservatism that they've exhibited around the debt that they've run on for decades? Well, so I'd say two things on that. One is I don't think that congressional Republicans, at least not all of them, are going to look at tax cuts that may expand the deficit on the official numbers and say that that's sort of the same as, for instance, quote unquote, deficit spending. I think they'll view those things as different and they'll have less of an issue with the tax cuts, particularly if they're also thinking about dynamic scoring or the idea that the economy increases its growth rate as a result of tax reform and that produces tax revenue to offset the tax cut, et cetera. With that said, they still have a big challenge, which is there is a block of Republicans in the House in particular and to some extent in the Senate who just do not vote for debt limit increases. And unless they tie it into the budget process, they're going to need Democratic support as well. And so that, along with a couple of other fiscal deadlines, these are going to be traditional issues where you need some bipartisan support. And I'm not sure how much they're going to really be able to cross the aisle and get Democratic support when you have some Republicans who are not going to be willing to vote for their own debt limit increase. Yeah, and I think that how the ACA plays and in terms of how Speaker Ryan is able to manage the caucus, the Freedom Caucus, as you've heard, the conservatives, the deficit hawks in this debate with respect to health care will impact his ability to herd the cats on the budget side because, you know, is it going to fracture the caucus and the rest of it? And Alec raises a very interesting point, and I don't think we know this. John Boehner was able to get the debt ceiling raised with typically 60, sometimes north of 60 Democratic votes. There is a huge, as you know, resistance movement, I think, rising in the Democratic Party. And the question is, will Nancy Pelosi and others want to help get them out of the situation that they may then find themselves, right. which I think is something we have to watch. I'm not predicting. Yeah, I mean, look, Democrats were always a little more willing to go along when it was a Democratic president whose policies they more or less supported. I'll just mention one other thing that Michael touched on regarding both the ACA and the debt limit and the Freedom Caucus and the right side of the Republican Party, which is there is another dynamic that's changed too, which is that President Trump won a lot of those districts where you have the Freedom Caucus members or Tea Party members representing by 30 plus points in some cases. And so while John Boehner a few years ago might have had a hard time corralling some of them. It's certainly possible, and we'll see how it plays out with the ACA debate right now, it's certainly possible that President Trump will be able to more effectively put pressure on some of those folks than Republican leaders have in the past. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the Affordable Care Act. As we discussed a little bit, the House Republicans just released their plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And President Trump has basically signaled his support. He's 
not wholeheartedly embraced it, but there's been some resistance to the plan already amongst moderates on the one hand for some issues, conservative Republicans on the other. And Alec, you've written that the legislative outcome on this issue is as hard to predict as anything you can remember. Why is it so challenging for Congress to address the health care issue? Big picture, almost to a person, whoever you talk to around D.C., it feels like everybody feels like eventually they're going to get something done on this. But it's really hard to find anybody who knows exactly what that thing is going to be. And right now, it feels like the bill that came out from the House Republicans doesn't quite seem like it's that bill yet. Why it's so hard? I mean, look, I think there are two general issues. One is on just the process, which is that, you know, initially they were talking about repealing now, replacing later. Part of the reason that they were talking about that was because there wasn't really a plan in place yet to do that replacement. Second issue is because ultimately they want to try to spend less money but cover the same amount of people as before, and that's a very hard thing to do. And I think what we're seeing right now as part of this ACA debate is if you look at where they started and where they've ended up today, it's starting to look more and more like Obamacare. And there's a reason, which is that some of the choices that they made a few years ago, several years ago, they made for a reason. They tried to basically cover as many people with as little federal resources as possible. And so we're starting to see them, I think, go through that same process. But as long as it's being called Obamacare light by conservatives, it's going to be hard to get substantial Republican support. Yeah, I think there's a couple things you need to watch. I think they have a short timeline for the short-term problem they need to fix. In other words, there sort of looks like a mini revolt going on on it from the conservative side. So if the bill is redrafted to sort of satisfy that group, it creates sort of moderate problem, not only in the Senate, but even in the House. That's number one. Number two, they're also operating without a CBO score. A CBO score is a conditional budget office score and how much it's going to cost and how many people are, are not going to be covered, which is going to start being a political issue that you're going to have to watch to see how it cuts. Does it make people nervous that they're actually going to have to go home and defend the fact that millions of people will lose the Medicare or Medicaid expansion? I think there's a third element that you should watch is a lot of conservative funders, the Koch brothers, Heritage Action, a number of others are growing impatient with the lack of energy on the repeal question because there's very much for repeal and a notion that you can do this later. And I think you're going to see increasing pressure coming on members to sort of act. All those forces interacting make for an interesting two weeks that are coming up. I will note, and it's a black box for us, I think, is the Senate is going to wait to see what ultimately can happen. We know that there's certain moderate Republican unease to do something, they're more concerned about what the replacement's going to look like and loss of coverage, you know, at the same time wanting to be able to wrap themselves around the notion of repeal. And then the governors, the Republican governors who have played into the Medicaid expansion are going to weigh in here. So, Well, they I, have weighed in. They yeah. basically said, don't, don't take too, away too much money. And I think the feeling is that eventually have to get something done. But the reason people feel eventually gets done is not necessarily a substantive reason is that you know ultimately that it is the major roadblock to progress on everything else. Well, let's talk about that. If repeal and replace takes longer than it, people now expect, which almost seems like a sure bet at some level, what does that mean for the rest of the agenda? And the rest of the agenda, frankly, is a little more popular with corporate clients, at least non-healthcare clients, and with folks who are in the markets. We talked a little bit about the notion of taxes. So if you take what Alec just said, which was it will be a cut probably not massive reform, the big idea of the border adjustment tax, probably taking on some water. 
Secretary Mnuchin said he'd like to have tax reform done by August. We all think that's aggressive given what we're seeing now. We think that could be end of the year. Even just a simple tax cut? I think so, given the process. But I would be willing to say that it's aggressive at this point. I think the other thing on the DREG part is really a personnel question. So it's much more in the Trump administration's control um, to ultimately get the right people in the right spots. Let's take that issue for a second. Isn't deregulation in essence already happening because you've frozen the incumbents or in some places removed them and no one else has replaced them, even in that interregnum? Don't you essentially get a different kind of regulatory environment? You certainly get a pause. What we would have expected in a Clinton administration would have probably been, at least in the financial services sector, a notion of increasing regulation, not a real look at any kind of pause maybe still on the edges with most of the agenda finished. I think you're right. I think you get a change in atmosphere. You have vacated positions of people that have played an outsized role. And at a minimum, you get that just by the simple fact that you have a new president. I think a more aggressive, holistic look, even in the energy sector, in the healthcare sector, but in financial services in particular, you really do need the nominees in place to begin to reshape those agencies and the policies related to them. But I don't think you can expect big moves while they're waiting to do that in either direction. Alec, let's get back to trade. The president, as you mentioned, has pretty wide latitude on adjusting our trade policies. What would happen if the U.S. actually instituted tariffs on particular countries like China or Mexico, as has been discussed, at the levels proposed in the campaign? And what would that mean for growth? During the campaign, he talked about 45% tariffs on China, 35 on Mexico, Everybody can sort of say that's probably at the very extreme end of what's likely. But let's say that that happened. That would result in an overall increase in tariffs of 11% on average across the board. So it means lower growth, not so much because of the tariffs themselves, but because of what other countries do, which is retaliate against U.S. tariffs. And so our estimate was that it probably knocks a couple to a few tenths of a point off of GDP growth over the next couple of years. By discouraging American exports. Yeah, by lowering American exports, also lowering American imports, but the net ultimately ends up being negative. And the other thing it does, which is important, is it also then pushes up inflation by about the same amount, a couple to a few tenths. And so what you get when you look at the trade agenda, you could say also actually the immigration issues sort of cut the same way, is a little bit more inflation and less growth. And that's one thing that I think a lot of clients have basically focused on is there are risks on that side as well. So we can't just focus on trade. But right now, I'd say most of the focus is on tax and things like that. And I think as we start to see personnel put in place, I think we will start to see some of these trade measures actually come out, maybe in a more targeted measure initially. So tariffs on certain product categories, things like that. And then It remains to be seen whether we have something more across the board later. The president is spending a lot of time talking to CEOs. He's had meetings with manufacturing CEOs, automobile CEOs, a wide range of folks in this business council. I expect the input he'd get from CEOs is that these tariffs would be ill-advised by and large. There might be some segments of the U.S. manufacturing industry that support some targeted tariffs. The steel industries sometimes push for those. What have you heard about the way in which he's taking on that kind of feedback he's getting? I'll just mention two things. One is, while I'm sure that CEOs will be trying to dissuade him from any kind of really aggressive across-the-board type of action, there is this term that you see the Trump administration using, which is reciprocity. 
and this idea that basically you're not necessarily trying to impose punitive tariffs on any other country, but more or less just actually leveling the two things. So, you know, as an example, if the U.S. were to impose the same tariffs that other countries impose on U.S. products, it would be an increase we've calculated of two and a half to five percent. So it's not nothing, but it's not quite the 45 percent tariff or 35 percent tariff. The second thing I'll, I'll note is that I think a lot of this does end up getting into very industry-specific issues, which go beyond just tariffs. And so while, I mean, my general impression is that the broad U.S. business community would be opposed to any kind of across-the-board tariff, they might be a little bit more interested in, for instance, like greater enforcement of intellectual property rights in China or in, or in other countries. Yeah. And so I think there are things that are on the trade agenda that they might be interested in, even though my guess is that they probably are. And just, tariffs may be a lever to get greater exactly. intellectual yeah. property protection. Trade for Trump in certain the way he poses, he believes is a political winner. I mean, I think you don't have a lot of sort of focal free traders in the same way that you had before. And I think one of the debates that's going on within the, the administration, as we sort of look at it from afar, is that there is a notion that he really does believe he wants to be tough on China in his mind and balance that against a pro-growth agenda that a trade war obviously wouldn't accommodate. So I think, as Alec points out, they're going to try to, in a loud way, find a balance in trying to do some of those things without miscalculating. And I think, you know, as we even understand, there's some efforts to have a bilateral meeting with Trump and Xi Jinping that others are talking about. That's a high-risk meeting for the Chinese leader, at least currently. So I think trade's real. I think it's a political winner. And I think the question is, how far do you go? Certainly Wilbur Ross, in his most recent comments, began to raise this idea of reciprocity. When you're talking to clients who are obsessed right now with what's going on in Washington, and they say to you, Michael, Alec, what's the bottom line? What can I expect this year? What's a realistic set of expectations around what this administration may accomplish between now and the end of the year? What do you tell them? What we say is that ultimately the Trump administration has to figure out how to take two or three very popular agenda items and make it successful while being unconventional. And being successful means working in a conventional way through Congress. And I think the growing pains here are being seen. So if I had to say that what the bottom line is going to be, it is the agenda is significantly delayed and on the tax front more narrow. The politics of the ACA are very treacherous and can end up coming back to bite them. And that the DREG agenda will proceed apace when the nominees are put in place, but that too will be delayed. Alec, what's your view? I generally say that if you were to break out the importance among clients of all of these different issues, a lot of it boils down to the tax cut in the end. And whether you call it a reform versus a cut, that's really the key. And so if we think about, as an example, our equity market call for the year, our equity strategist, David Costin, is basing a lot of that view on the idea you've got a lot of enthusiasm right now, but based on our view you're going to have a tax cut that's probably a bit smaller and a bit later than what people have been expecting. And I'll say, if you just look at the chronology of this, right after the election, there was a discussion about this is going to be a 2017 tax cut. Now it's clearly a 2018 tax cut. Maybe it gets enacted by the end of this year, but it's going to be mainly a 2018 thing. Who knows? It could be a 2018, 2019 story ultimately. And so I think you know the way that I basically tell people to position is expect that this is going to happen but also expect that it's going to take longer and probably be smaller 
than what at least was initially expected. And then a lot of these other things, infrastructure and some other things that people have been interested in, we may see a little bit of that, but that's not what's going to really be driving things. And one of the things I've said to clients is that in the last six weeks, people have met Trump and Trump's met Washington. And meeting Washington is dealing with these institutions and getting things done, no matter what president it is, whoever it is, a reformer, establishment figure, is enormously difficult. And even when you have both houses of Congress, but you don't have a Senate majority of 60. And that kind of patience for statecraft is something Trump's going to have to either learn happily or not. But I think that's going to be a big challenge. Yeah, it does seem as though you've got this opportunity for the Senate and House Republicans who haven't had a Republican president that they could work with that just seems so compelling. They've got a lot of things they want to get done. And Speaker Ryan and his team and the majority leader, the Senate, Senator McConnell, they have this window of opportunity at the early part of the administration to get some things done that they've long wanted to do. And even if the White House is a little bit unorthodox, a little unconventional, aren't they going to seize that opportunity? Or are the politics too difficult for them? In terms of the things that they want to get done, we were talking about tax reform, wanted to do that for years. They get it done, right? In some way, they get it done. Right. Beyond that, there are also some things that they've wanted to get done for a long time that seem to be going just about nowhere. As an example, how about entitlement reform? Remember that one? <laughs> you know, yeah. We haven't talked a lot about that recently. So I think there are other aspects of the kind of longer-term Republican agenda that just, at least at the moment, are basically off the table. You have congressional Republicans looking at the Trump administration as a way to get some things done. But ultimately, that focuses on where is their overlap between the traditional Republican agenda and the Trump agenda, because not in all cases are they the same thing. Excellent. Michael, Alec, thanks for joining us today. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. If you like our podcast, please consider leaving a comment on the platform of your choosing. And thanks again for listening. This podcast was recorded on March 8, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.